Welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton. Mark Mennell is European and Caribbean Director for Langham Preaching, part of the Langham Partnership. For nine years, he was on the senior ministry team at All Souls Langham Place in London. His latest book, published by IVP, is called When Darkness Seems My Closest Friend. It explores the shame, confusion, exhaustion, isolation and despair of living with depression, especially as a Christian minister. It seeks wisdom from the Bible, especially from the Psalms, which he describes as his oxygen tank in darkest times, although it does not pretend to offer easy answers. I spoke to Mark about the book in London recently. If you don't subscribe to the Church Times, you can try 10 issues for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. First, I'll just ask how you came to write this book. Am I right in thinking it's not a sort of self-help book in how to deal with depression as such? Correct. I think it was actually purely personal to begin with. Um, It was a a process of trying to articulate some of the things that I was going through. And I think I'm one of those people that thinks best on paper and processes on paper. So the process that I went through in writing it with a therapist and, and one or two close friends was you know, sort of toing and froing, writing a chapter and then talking about it and, and working out any implications of that. So it was very much a personal enterprise from the beginning. Um, there was always, because I published before, there was always the possibility that it would lead to something going out wider, but that really wasn't the intention at the beginning. Can you tell us a bit about your experiences with mm. depression, that journey? I think, looking back, there was always the potential for it. You know, even as a teenager, I, I think looking back, I could see you know, what might in a previous age have been called a sort of melancholy disposition, which is not the same as just sort of being sad or low, but I think there was definitely the, the tendencies there. But the catalysts came... When we came back from East Africa, I was working in Uganda for a few years, and a few things happened while we were there that actually did have quite a profound effect on me, but I only really appreciated that after the fact. Um, so we came back in 2005, and almost immediately I started having sort of panic attacks and deep anxiety and, and, and classic symptoms of depression. Um, so I was diagnosed that autumn and put on medication immediately and then started a very long, drawn-out process of trying to figure out what on earth it all meant. I'd been ordained for a few years before that, but we came back for me to join the senior leadership team at All Souls Langham Place, so that was 2005. Obviously, being in a leadership team in a, in a big, well-known church, um, I mean, was there quite a lot of pressure to, to hide what was going on or, or create a sort of mask to pretend things were okay? In some ways, being in a large church made it easier because it was easier to hide at one level. I think in a small community where everybody knows everything, uh, that would have been harder. But at the same time, yes, of course. And I think the nature of city centre, life, London, urban, rat race, all of that stuff, where everybody is running at 100 miles an hour and trying to sort of keep their head above water, there is this general trend where you present a good face and you... people find it very hard to admit weakness or brokenness and I think also I did have this mask I talk about this in the book but I don't think I fully realized what was going on I assumed when I was really struggling that people would be able to tell and therefore come and help 
but that was not the case and they weren't coming to help and it's not because they were callous it's because actually my mask was very effective and so I had to really unpick that and figure out well, where had that come from why why was I able so convincingly to present being sorted and while, while you were say training for ordination had there been any uh, advice on how to deal with mental health issues yes there have been a bit and you know we had to do some counseling training some basic sort of you know 101 stuff and you know I, I think I was well aware that I was not as sort of robust as, as some. So it was just, yeah, it, it was there. But I don't think, you know, I think one of the problems is you don't think um, that's me. It's about this, okay, I'm training for ministry and I'm, I'm here to help other people. <laughs> You're not instinctively thinking, oh, but this might be me. Um, it's not that there's no self-reflection, of course not. Um, th th there is, and, you know, any theological and ministry training worth its salt will always be thinking, you know, what sort of person are you and how is that going to impact the kind of ministry you have? So I, that, that was definitely an element, but I, I guess it is a lack of maturity as well. I was in my middle 20s and, you know, you just don't think it's me. You write in the book about the difficulty of defining and describing depression. Um, you say feeling low quite emphatically is not depression. It can't usually be dealt with by a hot bath an early night or a walk <laughs> with a dog. As a metaphor, depression is hopeless. I mean, do you think too often in the church particularly <coughs> the word is used too flippantly to describe just a sort of general low feeling when it's actually a serious mental health condition? I think so. I mean, I think, you know, in, in the sort of colloquial talk, you know, people will say, oh, I'm, I'm feeling really depressed, mm -hmm. I miss my train, or, or, or whatever, and it, it yeah. just trots out. And, you know, hey, this is, this is how people talk, and, that, yeah. and, and that's fair enough. You can't just sort of be canute-like and stop that. I think it's just saying, look, don't assume that when people use that language, this is, what, this is the reality that's being described. So I think my big, you know, the big element of my story over the last sort of 13-odd years has been trying to find vocabulary for myself, and occasionally it's resonated with other people, and at the heart of that is metaphors. Mm -hmm. Depression itself is a metaphor, you know, from weather systems and all the rest, but it's an inadequate one because it's just, it's been flattened and diluted. Because you see, for instance, it's, sometimes it's not about feeling low, it's sometimes it's about feeling nothing. Mm -hmm. The absence, absolute absence of highs, lows or anything, and it's like being in a void. And then, you know, you start questioning yourself and, and thinking, well, what? What's going on? Where, where's it all gone? So I'm a sort of amateur musician. For a long time, I completely lost music. Um, and it was like, well, where did that go? Uh, but that had been an outlet, an expression. And suddenly it just left me cold and had no impact on me at all, which was weird because, um, you know, for eight, sort of 30 years before or whatever, it had been central. So it's, it's complex. And I think that's why... I recall a bit about just the ease of words that people use. You're right, the question I cannot get out of my head is just why so much of mental illness makes no sense. It's irrational and without obvious cause. I've seen particularly someone of faith where um, a lot of life is explained by causes and seems to have a purpose and a meaning. That must be very scary, particularly if you're having to think and get up and preach yes. from the Bible and things. And, and so you then you begin to think, well, am I being a total hypocrite here? 
And I talk a bit about the nature of real hypocrisy and whether or not that is hypocrisy. It's, it's you know, when does duty become hypocrisy? Is, I think that's the sort of the, the fine line. I think actually points to have a Christian faith makes this harder. Um, it's not the panacea. And of course, ultimately, eschatologically it is. I do believe that. But in, in the midst of it, it is not because actually it ratchets up the extent of the questions. That's why Job's suffering was so acute because he was trying to piece together the, re- the reality of his experiences and his convictions of, in God's goodness and justice, not helped at all by his mates. Whereas if there's no God and we live in a screwed up world, you just say, okay, well, I don't like this very much, but that's the way it is. It's, it's, it's throwing into the mix the goodness of God and the justice of God that makes that so much more confusing. But I think this is where, for instance, um, the wisdom literature of the Bible, the Psalms particularly, is so crucial because what you suddenly realize is that for millennia, people have been confronting precisely that issue and expressing it whether in a, in a sort of narrative form like Job or in, in the Psalms, where they're saying to God, well, you, says you're, you say you're like this, and I'm going through this, so what's going on? Hmm. Um, and that is liberating, because it's like, okay, this is not a 21st century problem. But basically, it was only, I don't know, seven or eight years ago that suddenly Psalm 88 thwacked me between the eyeballs, and I suddenly thought, what is this doing there? And yet... Thank God it's there. So the, the title of the book is a, is a subtle change from the text of the psalm. So the last verse says, you know, darkness is my closest friend. And my, my theological conviction is that God is my closest friend, not darkness. But the whole point is that his perception, the psalmist's perception is that that is what it's like. And that's been my perception. And so the, the sort of the glimmer of hope, if you like, in the book rests almost entirely on the verb when darkness seems my closest friend. And that was very deliberate because one of the things I think I've had to learn is not to trust my perceptions, which is a really alarming thing because how else do you live? You know, we need our perceptions. That's how we interact and engage with reality and the world. But, as Paul says, we live by faith, not by sight. So, okay, I take this on trust. Darkness is not my closest friend. And that's even if you don't necessarily feel that way. Because, I mean, you write about how the the track record of God's faithfulness and the example of other Christians, you need to cling on to that. Exactly. And in the Emmaus Road encounter, where you sort of would love that kind of imminent Mm. encounter, but you don't necessarily experience that. So, So part of it's clinging on even when you don't. Yeah feel yeah i mean when when paul says uh, we live by faith not by sight i take it to mean sight there as shorthand for all sensory perception you know the, the old sunday school definition of faith you know faith is trusting god to keep his promises and actually that's something i've sort of stood my feet on that that point that actually okay i don't see a lot here but i've got a track record to rely on and and, and i think this is what the psalmist does all the time um, you know, he's saying, well, look, you promised this and you did that. So, okay, I'm waiting. You know, how long? 
but here I am, I'm, 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 I'm waiting. I'm all ears. I think there's something actually intrinsic to the Christian life there that is for all, regardless of whether they have mental health battles. Can you say a bit about the, the, met- the central metaphor of the book seems to be the cave? Mm. Can you tell us about that mm. as, as a metaphor for depression? I think it's because I hate caving. I did it once and I thought it was an, a miserable thing to do. I've got friends who love it and, you know, love squeezing through sort of two centimetres wide. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me at all. Um, but, you know, hey. Um, so so um, I resonate with the horror of it. Um, but I think it's, it's a resonant metaphor because it captures the sense of isolation, of darkness, of losing your bearings, losing your orientation. And, um, you know, in the in the, the, the darkness of um, not being able to hear clearly so things get muffled even with other people near you. And so I, I was trying to get something that describes the isolation and the confusing nature of it. So that, that's why I sort of latched onto it. I was very interested in the, I think it's a chapter of the weight, where you talk about the relationship between guilt, mm. shame and depression and how people particularly in pastoral ministry need to be incredibly careful probing. Sometimes if someone's depressed, perhaps well-meaning but unhelpful Christians will say, is there some kind of sin you need mm. to confess? That's causing it. If that, mm. if that was confessed and brought to the open, you'd be, you feel better or something. Right. I mean, you say that can be incredibly unhelpful. Very much so. And depressed people can also feel very unnecessarily guilty. Right. I think, I think there's a real issue here of false guilt. I think there's something about depression that absolutely it, it magnifies and exaggerates n- negative perceptions. So, you know, there's, a, there's a, a voice in the head, not in a sort of literal sort of psychiatric voice in the head, but there's a, there's a sort of narrative going on um, that, that basically wants to bury your nose in it. And I think this is one reason why, for instance, you know, Churchill and, and others would talk about the black dog as if it's some kind of physical presence. But, and, and sometimes when I've talked to people, this, is, this has been helpful because it's as if there is a parasitical presence that is sort of eating away at you and doesn't want you to get help or support or a corrective from anybody else. So it, it draws you away from others through this internal narrative saying, you, you're just terrible, you're, you know, um, if people knew what you were really like, blah, 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 and all kinds of other things, so that you withdraw, and then it's a vicious circle. You, you, you can't break out of it. And, and so one of the ways it seems to me that the black dog does this is is through pressing you at those points where you are guilty and have been because none of us is perfect and I've got skeletons in my cupboard there are things I'm deeply ashamed of that I am guilty of so then the question is what actually does the gospel do I think it's important to make the distinction between guilt and shame I don't think in I think we've gone down a bit of a blind alley in ratcheting up the difference between guilt cultures and shame cultures. There's elements there, and having worked in overseas and in cross-cultural contexts, I think that too much is made of that, and we make 
this sort of sense that we are in the West, a guilt or Protestant right. West, a guilt culture, and there are other cultures, particularly perhaps Asian, that are shame cultures and so on. And and what that's done, whether or not there are tendencies, there probably are, but what that's done is actually to stop us really engaging and thinking about whether or not we have shame. And of course we do. Um, and, and so um, a helpful sort of distinction is guilt is I've done this wrong thing and therefore I'm guilty. And the gospel brings forgiveness. So that one thing, you know, your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow, it's washed, it's gone. So that one thing, gone. But shame says, you're the kind of person that does that. So even if that individual misdeed is dealt with, that says nothing to your identity, your sense of self-perception. So it's, it, 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 it's absolutely sort of fundamental. And, and, and what's worse is I know, because I'm the kind of person that did that, that I'm the kind of person that will do that again. And so... Um, one of the things that really hit me is that the Bible actually, and I think I'm right in saying this, um, there are almost twice as many verses and images in the scriptures, Old and New Testament, about shame as there are for guilt. So it's not that guilt is unimportant, but that actually shame is something we need to talk about, we need to deal with, and the gospel has a lot to say. So it's, it's um, the, the, the antidote, if you like, is being acceptable. Because shame says, if you really knew what I'm like, you wouldn't want me in the same room as you. If you really knew. Um, and the reality is that if we believe in God, we believe that he does know. And so we cower. So we need, so I think that's one reason why a lot of people are terrified of God, because they know that he knows. And so in our preaching, in our pastoring, we need to say, but here's the amazing thing about God, is that he knows, but he still wants you on the team. And in fact, he's made you acceptable. He's covered over your shame. And so actually, unwittingly, how we preach the good news, if it's not fully sort of orbed and, and embracing all the different realities in the scriptures, then unwittingly, we can make the depressed person, the shamed person, feel even more excluded because you just say, well, I'm going to have to ask forgiveness for this next week because I know I'm going to do it. Because mm. you write that the forgiveness for guilt, might, that pastoral approach might, might not be right for when the problem is shame. Is that Well, it, it, it's not that it's... It, it needs to be in... in it's not enough. It, right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it, there, there needs to be <clears throat> the full picture and you need yeah. to understand that actually to try and press somebody to repent and say, look, you know, have you really dealt with this because otherwise you wouldn't be feeling like this, is a kind, well, is both pastorally inept, but also it reveals a kind of Protestant prosperity gospel because it's like saying, oh, well, if you get right with God, then your life will be fine. Careless use of language, particularly in this area of guilt and shame, makes people worse. And I, I have been at my very worst points when people have done this, when they've sort of needled at it, trying to say, well, you know, surely there's something there. But that, that, that's Job's comforters. That's, yeah. that's, you know, that's as old as the hills. Yeah. That was interesting what you said about Job's comforters in the book, because you, 
they, they get quite a bad press, don't they? But you, you, one of the things you sticking up for them, you said, was they did sit with him for about a week. I know, that's impressive. And that's an example to follow that people yeah. do need to be... Li- it was only when the perhaps ill-informed advice came in. Well, when they started opening their mouths, yeah. <laughs> so, so is the advice to friends and, and family of people suffering depression to do more listening than talking? Mm. Mm. And, and waiting. I think the difficulty is, because we're all living in a rat race, you know, <laughs> time is money. Yeah. And so we're, we're herring around and the patient accompaniment, I think that's the crucial thing to accompany and to give time. And that in itself is a very generous, loving act. And that is a healing act. Because, you know, if shame is making you feel unacceptable, for somebody to sit with you for a week is incredibly healing. It's like saying, oh, they're willing to do this that's interesting (laughs) even though some might look on from the outside and think that's uh, not a very productive use of time it isn't a productive use of time that's right it is not a productive use of time but then ministry isn't about being productive we're always you know tempted by the latest sort of fads from different church models here's a model I'm 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 always nervous now of models well okay but and it's all about being more effective. Yeah. And yeah, there's, there's definitely, you know, we don't want to be ineffective, but actually one's got to just be slightly careful to, to, to discern what goals are in view. If it's helping me love individuals in church better, then I'm going to listen. But if it's about helping me to get more done and answer all e- more emails and process people, you know, like a sort of sardine factory... Then that, get more numbers, get your numbers up. Right, I yeah, think that's actually. terrifying. But I can remember, as you know, as an undergraduate, uh, going on to Christian Union and thinking, oh, this is great, and I really believe this, and I want to serve, and I'm going to go for this, and, and blah, blah, blah. And you know that you're going to have setbacks, and you know that this isn't a perfect world, but you think, basically, it's going to be okay. Um, and, and so then you're not prepared for reality. So maybe actually in our discipleship of people, one of the key elements has to be helping people to learn how to manage their suffering and manage their brokenness and fallenness and sinfulness. In a way, if you can put it sort of, sort of provocatively, we need to help people do sin and failure well. I think that's one of the things I've had. To, it's not that I'm not going to sin, and it's not that I'm not going to fail. I'm going to. So the question is, am I going to do that well, or am I going to make it worse? And, and maybe that's something we need to think about in terms of how we, we live as um, church and as leaders and, and how we deal with people when they fail, because sometimes it's a sort of ton of bricks brigade. So we just suddenly dump on people and... and, and sort of jump to sanctions and, and, and challenge and punishment. And there is a place for that, of course. Um, but we've just got to be more mindful of particularly sometimes the gradations we have of failure. And so some types of failure we deem worse than others. Um, and, and just how we love people who are broken and have failed. And actually that can be, you know, for somebody who knows they've really messed up, to know that they're still loved actually can be the one thing that helps them grow. 
Whereas, actually, if we react very, very harshly, we'll do just what the world does. I mean, the world, our culture today is, I don't know, but people accuse Christians of being judgmental, but, you know, you just look at Twitter, you just look at public shaming, you look at, you know, a celebrity says one thing that's slightly off, and then suddenly they are completely written off, deemed as the most homophobic, racist, chauvinist, whatever. And, and it may be that that word reveals something deeper, of course, but it may not. But suddenly they're completely written off and sent into outer darkness. That is a judgmental culture. And so that's one way we need to show, well, we're different. We're not like that. Because Jesus wasn't like that. It's 70 times 7. Just thinking also about Job's comforters and how friends can be helpful or unhelpful. You talk about the um, friends of people who are depressed can talk about what's real and not real. Right. And opening up other interpretations of what you're feeling. Right. Yes, yeah, so I think it has a distorting effect on your perceptions. Your perceptions of reality, of your future, and of how other people engage with you. So I know in my darker moments, I, I feel doomed. So I wake up in the morning and I think it's all going to go horribly wrong. And I'm, you know, at its worst moments, and I talk about this in the book, I genuinely thought I was waiting to be arrested. I almost had my hands out for the handcuffs. Such was this deep conviction that that was what was going to happen. Even though you hadn't done anything particularly to... No, but it was like, it's like, you know, when you're going through the, the security um, x-ray at customs, you know you've got nothing on you, but you, you're pretty sure they're going to get you anyway. If they ask you to come, say, <laughs> no, please step away there, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so there's that. And, and, and so um, you need people gently alongside to have a sense of where this is sort of being distorted and say, well, okay, yeah, that's one way of looking at it, but it might be like this. Or, no, they're not thinking that. This is not what they meant by that. And, 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 but that's what the cave does. It's an echo chamber that, that repeats the negativity and blocks out the positivity. So you need people patiently alongside say, no, that's, that's not like that. You talk about the relief of meeting other cave dwellers. Mm. I mean, that's the, the lovely C.S. Lewis definition of friendship, isn't it? You know, when you say, oh, what, you two? I thought I was the only one. And so there's a, there's a joy in shared experience. So, and, and it really doesn't matter that it's not the same. Because this isolates you, anything that helps you realise you're not truly isolated and that there are others in the cave is almost magic. It's just wonderful. But you need other people outside the cave because if you just hang around with cave dwellers all the time, you're going to drag each other down. And I've seen that. I've experienced that. I've done that. I've dragged other people down. Just because, you know, we all have our own needs and our own um, issues that we're sort of battling with. And, and so one's just got to watch that and be careful. But I really get why, you know, there are self-help group type things and you meet people with the same issue. Um, it's invaluable, it's gold dust. I just think of the impact of your depression on your ministry, you write that you think it's actually, in the end, made you a better pastor. I hope so, I think so. Just because I'm, I'm not shockable now and I really know what it is to be broken and to be at the end of yourself and so it doesn't matter what it is, Somebody might have done something truly terrible. Somebody might have done something criminal. 
and of course there are sort of consequences and implications from that but but the heart of it is I, I don't see myself actually in the end as that different and that is surely a basic necessity for ministry but it took a long time for me to realize that I'm not different and all of us go you know I, I think this is inevitable this is the sort of the energy and exuberance of youth and, and so on. You go, and I was ordained in my 20s and had such high hopes and I was going to have this ministry. I wasn't ever particularly ambitious. I, I, I really wasn't. But, you know, I had this sense that I was going to be able to help people. Yeah. And to do that from a position of strength and sortedness. Yeah. Well, that went out. <laughs> and so it's having had that, you said you went to boarding school, went mm. to Oxbridge, or that, that sort of trajectory seems yeah. very much... It felt like a conveyor belt and yeah. it, was, it was all fairly sorted and I was going to be yeah. up there. Well, that, yeah, there we go. <laughs> I'm not. And that's fine and that's better. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, it's much better. There's a story in the book about um, the, I think it's a vicar has a cure and he's taken to right. see someone who's made a exactly. complete mess of his life and squandered money or whatever marriage. it is. Yeah. And he says, can you imagine yourself in that position? And the curate says, it's terrible, but I, I wouldn't yeah. be in that position. And the, pastor says well we don't need you then he said you go home I'll go on alone when I first heard that story it was, I don't know 10 years ago now and it was dynamite I just thought hallelujah hallelujah because you know the, the, the ground at the foot of the cross is flat mm. um, and, and so this is why you know I hope that people who have not had mental illness will read this because even if that's not your brokenness, that the reality is we are broken. And what scares me is when you get leaders who don't acknowledge their brokenness or they don't let their brokenness inform how they do ministry. They might acknowledge it, but there's somehow a disconnect between how they relate to other people. So I think this is, that's, that's the big lesson for me in my own work. And you talked at the end of some of the advice on managing the symptoms of depression, just practical things mm. you, you've put in place. Mm. Well, what are some of those that might help people? Um, not to be snooty about the simplest, most basic things like sleep, diet. Uh, we got a dog so that I could go f for walks with a dog. And actually, that's ironically enough, she's a little black dog, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> but, but actually, I've really appreciated actually just the need to go for walks with her um, so there's something therapeutic in that I've been careful about what I've read I've read too many Christian books that have driven me crazy because they're just too generalized or too prescriptive ironically enough even from people who've been through it um, it's almost as if well I came through it because of this therefore this is what you need to do so I hope I've tried to well, I've tried to write something that wouldn't have infuriated me in the darkest moment. That was kind of my agenda. Now, whether or not I've succeeded for everybody, probably not. But that's what I was hoping, that it could be read in the midst of it, if one was able to. I think trying to find things that are life-enhancing, so the arts generally, music, very, very important for me. I think in the end, it's, as a Christian and as a pastor, it's about 
getting to know the broken Christ and trying, it's easier said than done, not to be thrown by a lot of the very stupid or unthinking or just ignorant things, particularly Christians uh, say, and just have a better understanding of what this is. I think that was my problem. I just didn't understand. And for somebody who had done degrees and theological training and, you know, it's all about understanding and trying to get your head around it. Well, and I still don't really, but, you know, for the first 10 years, I just didn't know what was going on. But, but, but sort of digging away at it, getting help, professional help, not being afraid of medication is not right for everybody. But again, a generalized statement about medication is not helpful. Um, therapies, different, tri- different things, you know, all of this stuff. It's, basically, it's just, a lot of it is just trial and error, unfortunately. But anything that isn't trial and error actually is probably prescriptive and therefore dangerous. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.